Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. In today's episode, poet, Anglican priest, and scholar Malcolm Guide will help us understand how the creative acts of speaking and writing provide a window into what it means to be created in the image of God. I think Coleridge was proposing poetry as a spiritual discipline, but I think the really interesting thing about what he says there is that the poetry is awakening the mind's attention to the loveliness and wonders of the world before it. It's not some merely subjective thing that's a little private compensation for the grimness of the world, true to me, but you know, not telling me anything about what's out there, which is the way poetry has often been portrayed in our age, because we split everything between subjective and objective, don't we? And subject is all wonderful and beautiful, but doesn't actually make any difference to the world. And objective is all the dry, hard facts, but has no values. That's a false division. And poetry is there to heal it. Today's episode is an edited version of our online conversation from January of this year. You can find the full video of that conversation, as well as our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. So we are at the beginning of a new year that seems likely, at least here in the States, to be noisy and even nasty. A wash in put downs and propaganda, conflict and conspiracy. And so it seemed fitting, even urgent, to begin the new year in the word. Not only to reflect upon the creative and renewing power of the word made flesh, but also on the power of the words that we use. And to help us do that, I am delighted to get to introduce our guest today, a poet, priest, and songwriter who has written beautifully of the mystery, beauty, and imaginative force of language, and the ways in which the love and care for words can help us better to know and love their source and each other. Malcolm Geit is a renowned and beloved English poet, priest, songwriter, and scholar who has been described as what you might get if John Donne journeyed to Middle Earth, taking musical cues from Jerry Garcia and fashion tips from Bilbo Baggins. He is the Life Fellow at Girton College at Cambridge University and has served more than 20 years as chaplain there, as well as teaching at the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge University and lecturing widely across England and North America. He is the 2023 winner of the Len Frank Award for Education and Scholarship, a singer-songwriter with the band Mystery Train, and a remarkably prolific poet and author who writes the weekly column Poets' Corner, as well as producing more than a dozen books spanning works of poetry, criticism, and anthologies, including Love, Remember, Parable and Paradox, Theology and the Poetic Imagination, The Singing Bowl, Waiting on the Word, Lifting the Veil, Sounding the Seasons, and his most recent work, The Word Within the Words, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Yes, I always get this you know, fashion tips from Bilgo Baggins. I think I've just been wearing sort of waistcoats all my life, really. Uh, anyway, I'm delighted to be with you again. I very much enjoyed the conversation we had some years ago, and I, I watch and follow the work of, of Trinity Forum, and it's good to see these enclaves, as it were, in the midst of the the vituperativeness and spite and slander to which you referred, that there should be enclaves of civility, of cordiality of intellectual hospitality 
where Christians actually with different views can 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 disagree in order to find truth and in order to share it rather than simply to score points. So it's kind of you to, to have me on and, and to give a space and a place for poetry in the midst of your discourse. Well, it's always a delight to get to talk with you, Malcolm. So welcome back. We're really glad you're here. And as we start off, I wanted to ask you about the fact that there seem to be a number of fairly uh, quite famous English poets who were also priests. I'm thinking of Gerard Manley Hopkins, George Herbert, John Donne, and others. Uh, and as one who is now carrying on that tradition of being both a priest and a poet, what do you see as the connection between the two professions? Uh, and how does your work as a poet affect your understanding as a priest and, and vice versa? Uh, yeah, thank you, that's a very good question. The first thing to say is I'm very relieved that I'm not the only one, as it were, that there is a tradition for me to look back to. Perhaps the most significant figure for me in that tradition is, is George Herbert. But you're right, John Donne, Gerard Manny Hopkins, more recently, the Welsh priest poet R.S. Thomas. So there is a there is a tradition and it makes me at least feel that this can be done. I, I've come really to feel that that my priestly and poetic vocations are two sides of the same coin. But I have to say, I didn't always think that. They were both very strong vocations. I had the vocation, as it were, the deep sense that I was called to be and wanted to be a poet, a lover and a crafter of words before I had any sense of being called to be a priest. In fact, the, the poetry came before I returned to the Christianity, which I'd abandoned earlier on in which I'd been brought up, but I did the moody teenage rebellious thing and sort of walked away from it. And I was trying to walk into completely bleak, not bleak atheism and a scientific materialism, but poetry saved me from that. Poetry always breathed something beyond it, a kind of a mystery which was transcendent, glimmered through poetry, and it was a mystery which I couldn't deny. It seemed to be there even in poetry that wasn't apparently religious. So in a sense, poetry saved me. It was, somebody once said that romanticism spilt religion, you know. So I was gathering up the few drops, if you like, fallen from the altar I'd abandoned, you know, in the works of the poets. And eventually, thanks be to God, I came back to that fullness of faith. But the poetic vocation and the want, desire to be a poet came first. Then came the, the conversion to Christianity. Then, a little bit after that, this nagging feeling that I might be called also to be a priest. And um, that took some time to discern and to realize was a true vocation. And at first, I was afraid, or I, I wondered if there's a development. I mean, I hadn't had, you know, huge success with poetry. I'd published one or two little poems. I was finding the writing difficult. And I, uh, my first thought was that perhaps what I thought of as the vocation to poetry was really a misinterpretation of the vocation to priesthood. And I set poetry aside for a while, actually, as did Hopkins, interestingly, in his priesthood. And I concentrated fully on this new vocation. And I found it deeply demanding, but deeply fulfilling. But I began to realize that the I was doing as a priest some of the things that I wanted to do as a poet. That if you think of a poem as a shaped pattern of words, a beautiful a kind of journey from the first verse to the last that takes you through different stages, and reflections and hopefully brings you out at the other end of the poem with some kind of transformation or transfigured vision or deeper wisdom or knowledge. I thought to myself, I'm doing that every week with the liturgy, especially the liturgy of the sacrament. We gather, we hear these words, it's shaped, it's beautiful. It has poetry in it, of course, because it has the Psalms and hymns, but it also has something that poetry longs to do, but never quite does completely, which is the word made flesh. It has, it has, it has God giving himself in the sacraments of bread and wine. 
So for a while, I thought maybe this is what I was always after, and that just to be the celebrant of a deeply poetic liturgy was itself fulfilling a kind of poetic vocation. And there was an element of that that was true. But I also, I think, like a lot of priests, perhaps particularly new in their vocations, I was working not only every hour God sent, but some several hours that God didn't send for work, but I used for work anyway. And I was getting close to burnout. And I thought to my, my bishop said, have a break, have a three months off, do what you want, you know, pretend it's research, write me a report, but just have a break. And um, I thought, golly, I, I need poetry. I really need poetry. And I reread huge amounts of poetry, not just Christian poetry, but all kinds of poetry. And it was like a well filling up again. I was deeply refreshed, not in my, only in myself, but in my faith. And I began to see how poetry, and around about that time, I read a poem of Seamus Heaney's, which had the line, read poems as prayers, which is a blindingly simple thing to say, but it had never really occurred to me that when I was reading a poem by Keats or something, I could still feel that God the Spirit and Christ my Saviour was standing beside me, as it were, reading it with me. I felt that he is the word beneath all words anyway. So to enjoy poetry, as it were, in the divine presence, consciously in the divine presence. And then, of course, in the case of the poems like the Psalms or other devotional poetry, to say them to Christ suddenly brought this very beautiful dimension to the poetry. And I began to see, I mean, my fear had been because poetry is very absorbing and time absorbing and attention absorbing, that if I spent time on poetry, as opposed to, you know, all the work of pastoral visiting and everything, you can fill up 24 hours, that I might be, to borrow an old phrase, robbing Peter to pay Paul, that I might, I didn't want to shortchange, you know, if I was going to shortchange anybody, I'd rather shortchange my muse than my saviour. But I gradually, it was borne in upon me, that these things and that, I, that a particular aspect of my priestly vocation might be my poetic vocation and a particular aspect of my poetry vocation might be my priestly one that there might be something priestly or sacramental or pastoral that was distinctive about the kind of poetry that i would choose to write so gradually from a little bit around the turn of the millennium i began to bring these two halves of my vocation together and Thanks to the examples of George Herbert and John Donne and others, I began to see that these two were one, really, and that they were mutually enfolded. And when I was making that transition, I decided to teach a little course, not at a university, but just at the local community education. And I called it Faith, Hope and Poetry. And I was really interested to discover that half the people who came were, were were dried up and burnt out Christians who just wanted something to feed their imagination and renew their faith. And they were interested that this was a priest doing it. But the other half were agnostics or non-believers who loved poetry, but had always felt there was something spiritual going on there, but it was never mentioned at school. And they were intrigued that there was a priest teaching a poetry course. So I had a very interesting mix. And just that, just that in itself, made me think, okay, I'm onto something here. I must be unashamedly a poet and unashamedly a priest, and I must be both at the same time. And that will be something I can offer. And you know, eventually that faith, hope and poetry became a book and so on. So that's how it got going. So now I don't think, I don't say to God, sorry, can I have some time off to write a sonnet? But then I don't say to the muse, okay, God's got nothing to do with this. It's, you know, this is this is just a piece of I, I, there's a complete flow through in both. Yeah, that that's fascinating. You you wrote it someplace. Um, I think it was lifting the veil, 
that uh, the way you had seen it, the whole purpose of poetry, and I, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were paraphrasing Coleridge here, was to, I think you put it, awaken the mind's attention. And yes. the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, which um, yeah. struck me in reading that, that, you know, in many ways, of course, that's what the spiritual disciplines uh, aim to do is to refocus our attention and help us see more deeply. And so would love to kind of hear your further thoughts on that, the, the ways that, um, yeah, you see the, the purpose of poetry is really perhaps yeah. even. Yeah, I'm going to say immediately that those fine words which you quoted are exactly the words of Coleridge. Coleridge said that what he and Wordsworth wanted to do in the lyric was to remove the film of familiarity, which our selfishness and solicitude has cast over the world and help us see, as it were, afresh, the wonders in front of us, the inexhaustible depths and beauty for which we have eyes that see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. So there's almost a clearly a spiritual purpose there. So I think Coleridge was proposing poetry as a spiritual discipline. But I think the really interesting thing about what he says there is that the poetry is awakening the mind's attention to the loveliness and wonders of the world before it. It's not some merely subjective thing that's a little private compensation, you know, compensation for the grimness of the world, true to me, but, you know, not telling me anything about what's up there, which is the way poetry has often been portrayed in our age, because we split everything between subjective and objective, don't we? And subject is all wonderful and beautiful, but doesn't actually make any difference to the world. And objective is all the dry, hard facts, but has no values. That's a false division and poetry is there to heal it. So Coleridge says poetry actually clarifies the way you see the world. In that sense, it's just as important as the, as the polished curved lens of the mirror in a telescope that lets you see the stars more clearly, that awakens your mind attention. You know, the Hubble telescope is itself a paradigm of poetry, puts you in a new perspective and lets you see the familiar. I don't think there's any quarrel between the science and the arts here or not the science has done really well because both awaken a sense of wonder. So that was a really important thing for me, that you're not going to see the whole picture. Poet, actually, Coleridge says that the imagination, not just the poetic imagination, but what he calls the primary imagination, is the living power and prime agent of all perception. Now, if that's true, that, it, that if, if reason, if you like, analytic reason is only one of our eyes, and a sort of synthesizing imagination that takes all the hints and joins all the dots and sees the beautiful whole and intuits what's beyond it is the other eye then in a sense the purely rationalistic scientific world that has believed it could crush religion has only ever really been squinting at the world and we need to open the other eye and see things whole and if that's true of the way we see the world then, and this is something very, it's also true of how we come to God. God is always going to be both beyond our imagination and beyond our reason. And it's clear that we can have vain imaginations and false imaginations, and we could make false images. And if we do, then God will break those false images and come through. You know, God is the, in that sense is the great iconoclast. But it is equally true that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And somewhere in all those alls is all your imagination. And in fact, when we look at the teaching of Jesus, it's mostly an appeal to the imagination as a way of perceiving truth in a fresh way. He tells stories and parables. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan and says, which of these was neighbor? You know, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? 
which is the question that provokes the parable. He doesn't go, well, these people are your neighbor, but those people are beyond the pale. He tells a story in which the person beyond the pale turns out to be the true neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And then he says to the lawyer, go and do thou likewise. And so he tells a story to not to entertain on a cozy fireside night. It may do that. But he tells it in order to transform somebody's understanding and teach them what is actually the case. So I think the imagination is one of the ways we come to truth. Now, that's a paradox, because, of course, we think of the imagination as making stuff up and we can make stuff up. But even when we make stuff up and tell imaginary stories like Shakespeare does, lo and behold, in the midst of those imaginary stories, all kinds of true things are said. And, of course, a classic example of that in scripture is where Nathan, the prophet, is trying to get David to stop seeing everything as if only he counted. And he's trying to awaken David's moribund moral imagination. So he tells, he makes up a story. He uses his imagination and he kindles David's imagination. And he tells him the story about the man with the one little lamb and the neighbor with all the sheep and how the neighbor had all the sheep took the man's little lamb. And David is morally outraged. He says, whoever that man is, you know, we need to bring justice to him. And of course, Nathan has the, the kind of killer final line. He says, you are the man. Now, there's a moment of actual apprehension of moral truth, transformative apprehension of moral truth and repentance that comes to David only as a result of an appeal to his imagination. He could have probably used reason to justify himself forever. Well, I'm the king, I'm an exception, you know, all of the, but as soon as a story is told. So I think the imagination, as much as reason is, is there to 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 help us get at the truth and and get, certainly get at the meaning of things i mean c.s lewis once said that if if truth is the natural organ of reason uh, sorry if, if reason is the natural organ of truth then imagination is the organ of meaning and there's no point in having truth if you don't know what it means so i'm very much trying in some of my academic writing but also in my poetry to to heal that breach between those two ways of knowing yeah. And my poems sometimes are quite philosophical and appeal to reason, but they're obviously all always works of poetic imagination. Yeah. As a priest, I'm sure you've gotten these objections because you know it's not just the world out there. And certainly that's true. I mean, within the scientific community, technological community, even the uh, community, the world of commerce, it seems like there's a devalued sense of knowledge that's not kind of non-literal, non-empirical, not easily pinned down. But frankly, there, there's also a strain of that within within Christianity, uh, a distrust of that which is not literal, like almost like you, if it's not taken literally, it's not taken seriously, or a distrust of non-representational art or the novel and the like. You know, as a priest, what, what's what's lost when we discount paradox and metaphor? Well, I think... First thing, I think if we happen to be in conversation with somebody who has this distrust, we should take their distrust seriously. And we should begin by saying, yes, there are dangers, but of course they're dangers of any good thing. You know, if I give my children a spade to dig the garden with, it is impossible that one of them might use the spade to bash the other over the head in a quarrel. That's not what the spade was made for. And it doesn't mean we should never do any gardening in case a spade is misused, you know? So, <laughs> So I have to show them the right use of the spade, you know, and uh, a better way of resolving conflict. But I'm not I'm still going to give them the spade and teach them to garden. 
So God has given us this extraordinary gift of imagination and we have to bring it to him. I mean, C.S. Lewis introduced a really interesting idea, which was a baptized imagination. Mm-hmm. That like everything else, there has to be a death and a resurrection. That's what baptism is. It's dying to the old self and rising to the new, going down into the waters with the death of Christ and rising from the newly born. The font is the womb of the church, as St. Andrew said. So I think everything, like imagination, like everything else, has to be let go of, given to God, and then received back again. Mm-hmm. But I believe that open, working prayerfully and openly with the Spirit, the imagination can achieve wonderful things and help us. Now, the scripture in the old version of the authorized version inveighs against vain imaginations. Now, vain in that early 16th century sense meant empty. Vanity meant emptiness. So don't, yeah, there is plenty of vain imaginations. You you know, you you don't have to walk far, you know, from Hollywood or, uh, you know, there's great art out there, but there's also completely empty, you know, just full of hot air and leaves you completely unnourished at the end of it, or as it were, you know, divinely disenchanted. I mean, uh, you know, but we all know great stories, great films, great music that suddenly open us up to the soul's depth and height, make us realise how deep being human goes, how high it might aspire, you know, how broad love is. And that's what Paul is asking us to have when he prays for the Ephesians, that you may know the length and breadth and height and depth and know the love of God, which passes knowledge. We have to bring the imagination to that. So I would, would say to the person, try it, trust it, bring it to God prayerfully. And don't don't waste your time with with artistic middle management. You know, you can all the great works of, of the greatest minds are freely available to you. You know, you can sit down and read Shakespeare any day you like. You can go and look at a Monet painting. You know, you can listen to Mozart and, you know, you don't even have to pay money or travel to a concert house. It, you know, it's just streaming. You can, have it. you know, immerse yourself in it. And uh, And I think once people have felt a little bit of that, then actually they can be very hungry for it because I think that that rather narrow, fearful, mistrustful attitude in some churches, I mean, particularly at the more Protestant end, but has left people with a starved imagination. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think Lewis has done, C.S. Lewis more than that, because C.S. Lewis had written a great book of sound, biblically-based, beautifully, philosophically-grounded, rational apologetics in the book, Mere Christianity. Lots Paul in the American evangelical word rightly said, this is a great book. Lewis is okay, as it were. They gave him his imprimatur. And that meant their children had the joy of reading Narnia, which, you know, they might not have otherwise had the pleasure of. And then if they grew up as I did and ended up reading C.S. Lewis's book about Milton, you know, or Spencer, they thought, wow, he becomes, as it were, uh, you know, you go into his wardrobe and you find not only Narnia, but an entire library of classics that he's written about and helped you to come to. So I feel in, in a way, or perhaps to mix metaphors, he's a sort of Trojan horse that somehow through Lewis, a really baptized imagination was made available to the evangelical mind and not a moment too soon. You know, I think the thing was drying itself out and sort of rattling like dead twigs, really. And it needed that. And I think Lewis and others provided that. Yeah, speaking of a baptized imagination, there's a passage early uh, in your work 
that I thought was lovely and wanted to ask you about where you said it was a transformative idea for both you and your sense of theology, the idea that we ourselves are a poem is the way you put it. And you said there's a poet behind the world who not only speaks the world into being, but speaks us into it. And part of being made in his yeah. image that our words too have weight and meaning and creative power. So essentially we are poems who speak poetry and that is some, that exactly. is also a question that creator. Now, yes, that I idea to talk more about that and how it affected your theology. That idea of being spoken into being is not some novelty. I mean, it's right there. If you read, if you if you read the beginning of John and say, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God," the same with me. Nothing was made without Him. Through Him, all things were made. So everything is made in something that has to be called Word or Logos. Now, because that book, John's book, begins with the words "In the beginning," you know immediately that he's referring you back to the beginning of Genesis, the other "In the beginning" in the Bible. And when you look at that, you see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out of form and void and darkness on the face of the deep. Spirit of God moved. And God said, he spoke, let there be light. And there was light. You know, fiat looks. And what you see verse by verse is God saying something, speaking it, almost as it were, singing it. And, and it becomes. So whereas when I'm writing poetry, I say some words. And I hope that in your mind, the words I say summon an image and the image becomes important for you as it's important for me and filled with meaning for you as it's important. But in the end, it's only in your mind because I can only use words. But God, who is the word, can write poetry with things. And in fact, the universe is one of his poems. Now, the poet who really got that, but it's a very biblical idea, but the poet who put it into poetry and English poetry particularly well was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who, who wrote a poem called Frost at Midnight about how he would like his son grown up and who should teach his son. And he didn't want him to be stuck in some dull school in the middle of London, you know, and just doing arithmetic. He wanted him to be have a bit more than that. So he said, thou my child shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of ancient mountains, which mirror in their bulk, both clouds and so on. A beautiful description of nature. He doesn't say, so shalt thou see and hear some interesting geological formations or some weather. He says this, he says, so shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters who doth teach himself in all and all things in himself, great universal teacher. He shall mold thy spirit and by giving make it ask. So he says these aren't just physical phenomena to study. They are that. Just as you could study the words on a page and you could, you know, do a, a chemical analysis of the ink my poems was written in, but you wouldn't know it was a poem, but you might. If you then discovered it was actually a poem as well, that would add to your pleasure. It wouldn't take away any of the scientific facts you found out about the ink, but you know, you'd know a bit more about it. So Coleridge is saying, come on, don't just study the world, hear the poem. And you notice he uses the present set tense. He says, that eternal language which thy God utters. God is speaking us in present because God is eternal. There's no time that's not present to him. So therefore, right now, he speaks, breathes into being. Now, you mentioned, I put, it, I put it at the beginning of the book, The Word Within the Words, 
partly to ground the whole, my theology is grounded, if you like, in a sense, in a theology of the word. It, it springs from the opening of John's gospel, really. That's the sort of touch point for me. But it also was transformative for me personally. I use a poem in there, and perhaps I can read it to you, as I have a little poem called O Sapientia. There's a very ancient prayer, one of the so-called O Antiphons, which speaks about Christ as wisdom, as the coming, you know, the coming of wisdom into the world. And he says, oh, wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the most high, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. Now that idea of Christ mightily and mightily and sweetly ordering all things, the writer of that probably in the fifth or sixth century was almost thinking, almost certainly thinking of the Christ hymn in Colossians, where he is before all things, he is in the beginning, all things were there. Then he says, in him, all things hold together. You know, that's that's crucial. So I think that includes us. I think he utters us, God utters us as a poem. And I put this in this little poem called O Sapientia, Wisdom, little sonnet. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught or break the bread except as I am broken. O oh, mind behind the mind through which I seek. O oh, light within the light by which I see. O oh, word beneath the words with which I speak. O oh, founding unfound wisdom finding me. O oh, sounding song whose depth is sounding me. Oh, memory of time reminding me, my ground of being always grounding me, my maker's bounding line defining me. Come, hidden wisdom, come with all you bring. Come to me now, disguised as everything. So was that kind of reversing the flow, as it were, thinking I don't have to there's no point in trying to do some kind of theology where I make God God up out of my own mind. There's no, that way madness lies. But what if God is speaking me? What if I'm, you know, it's, it's, you know, God is making me be who I am now. I came across another, it's essentially Coleridgean idea, as I say, but oh, it's a Johannian, Johannine idea, but Coleridge gets hold of it. But there's a wonderful story that I came across about Coleridge where he bumped into Thomas Clarkson, who was one of the, in fact, the founder of the great movement for the abolition of slavery. He's the guy that recruited the more famous William Wilberforce into it. Wilberforce was more famous because he did the speeches in Parliament because he was an MP. But it was a long struggle to change an unjust economic, economics and law. And many times it was voted down and scandalously actually voted down by all the bishops in the House of Lords, appalling. So at one point, it's just the sheer weariness in well-doing, if you like, you know, not compassion fatigue, but this happens to a lot of people who are campaigning. They can just be exhausted by the apparent impossibility of the task. And he fell into a depression and he was up in the Lake District. He bumped into Coleridge and made friends with him. And he wrote a letter to Coleridge and said, you've got to help me. I'm not just losing my faith in whether we can achieve this justice for, for enslaved people, but I'm losing my faith. I have no idea anymore of the divine. And Coleridge writes back, he says, my dear Clarkson, don't worry about that for time, for, the, for now, that'll solve itself. You may have no idea of the divine, but the, the important thing to remember is that you yourself are a divine idea, that God is thinking of you right now, and you were in the mind of Christ before the beginning of creation. Or he said, I'm gonna make Thomas Clarkson. 
and now he's speaking this eternal one of who you are into time and he has not finished saying into the world what he means by thomas clarkson and what thomas clarkson will do he's not finished yet let him finish what he has to say through you let him speak you renew yourself in him and try not to become an impediment in the speech of christ <laughs> wonderful you know uh, and uh, that transformed me. You know, I thought, gosh, I don't have to lift up the world and have the weight of it on my shoulders. I don't have to achieve anything. I just have to let God speak clearly his idea of who I am and what I meant to do distinctively into the world. And one of the things I think he meant for me to do was to be both a priest and a poet. And so I tried to let him do that. You know, I, I, he is the word beneath the words with which I speak. You know, he is, he is he's doing it. I have to let him do it and try not to get too much in the way with my moodiness and, you know, my little temper tantrums and, you know, uh, all that stuff. If our words have generative power, presumably they also have degenerative power. Oh, yeah. And and we are certainly at a time, well, here in the States, we're about to embark on an election season. There is a, a lot of really ugly rhetoric. We've yeah. had national leaders refer to other people as vermin or poisoning the blood and, you know, overtly dehumanizing language. Yeah. And, and there's a market for, for that kind of thing. Oh, I know. Um, it's, 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 yeah. yeah. And would love to kind of hear your thoughts about, you know, if, if we are ourselves poems, but what is our responsibility to care for language? And how do we learn to both care for language and as part of that, love it? Yeah, well, I think we we have a deep responsibility for language because language is a distinctive thing that God has given us. God is really interested in what we do with language. It's a very interesting moment in Genesis when he brings the animals to Adam to see what he would name them, not what God would name them, but what we would name them. You know, he's giving us this naming power and we can use names to, you know, bless and liberate or we can use them to curse, you know. And Jesus is really clear about the importance of this. He would be, he's the word incarnate. He's now telling us about what words are. And, and you know, famously in Matthew 12, and you know, he says, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof mm-hmm. on the day of judgment. For by thy words shalt thou be justified and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. You know, that should be written on the top of everybody's computer before they press send. Now, I once, I don't know, it may be time for another poem here. I, I once, it was actually sparked by some really bad political rhetoric where the one side was talking about targeting the other side and actually used a rifle target on the poster, which was just wicked. You know, I mean, there's no other word for it. And I was spurred on to think, you know, what if we, let's just go back to that saying with Jesus, what if we actually took that seriously? What if? And it was my go, it's the nearest I get to rap, I might say, it was me really having a go at at rhyming on it, but it goes, it went like this. What if every word we say never ends or fades away, gathers volume, gathers way, drums and dins us with dismay, surges on some dreadful day when we cannot get away, whelms us till we drown. What if not a word is lost? What if every word we cast, cruel, cunning, cold, accursed, every word we cut and paste echoes to us from the past? fares and finds us first and last, haunts and hunts us down. 
What if every murmuration, every otiosuration, every blogger's obfuscation, every tweeted titivation, every oath and imprecation, insidious insinuation, every verbal aberration, unexamined asseveration, idiotic iteration, every facile explanation drags us to the ground? I won't do the whole poem. I go on like that for some because there's so many examples. Imagine having to give an account of all those words to Jesus, the word himself who gave you the grace and gift of language. But I'll read you the end of my poem. Better that some words be lost, better that they should not last tongues of fire and violence. O word through whom the world is blessed, word in whom all words are graced, do not bring us to the test. Give our clamant voices rest and the rest is silenced <laughs> that last one line is from hamlet of course but at that point i thought let's just lay off for a bit i think i'd go further now and i think i'd say let's pray before we preach we always do that what about praying before we tweet you know what about praying what about just offering it up to christ and saying can i say this in your name you know I mean, I'm very, I, 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 I mean, in one way, I understand that people want to go out there and be valiant for truth. But part of the truth is the gentleness and meekness of Jesus. And part of the truth is his commandment to love even your enemies. So I think if you feel that, you know, some really important truth is being traduced, it's not unreasonable for you to enter into debate about it and try and change somebody's mind. That's a very proper thing to do. And you see it going on, you know, in the first councils of the church and, you know, in the Council of Jerusalem and some reported in Acts, you know, different opinions. We come to a common mind because we value each other and we believe we serve the same Lord. But I just think that certain social media platforms are not the places to have that conversation that really a place where you're sitting genuinely face to face with someone, you can hear them and see them and they can hear and see you. And you have the vulnerability of presence and names. That enables a conversation. I'm not saying that the conversation shouldn't take place. I'm not saying we should agree to disagree when we think that the thing we disagree about is of vital importance to the very survival of civilization as we may see it. But I think that, <clears throat> Being valiant for truth is not the same thing as being cruel or sneering or dismissive for truth. You know that valiant for truth is the name of a character in the in the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So, you know, it's an important thing to me. So, yeah, I do. I do think we need I think obviously in this year, both on in the election year that you are having in America and the election year that we now know we're having in England. There will be all the temptations to denigrate. There'll be all the temptations to 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 speak ad hominem to to not to not to to meet the our our opponent's argument not enemy but opponent our opponent's argument in its strength but to find the worst possible trashy version of what they are alleged to have said <laughs> and then diss that right. you know i mean i for example i noticed this word woke being thrown around all over the place and the people who are supposed to be woke uh, often don't use that word at all but i've met I, obviously i'm a chaplain in a modern university i meet lots of people that i quote unquote other people might call woke but they don't they don't fit into half the sneering categories that you know and they're often much more thoughtful and there is for some of them it's a ridiculous 
ideologically driven piece of nonsense. But for others, what they're trying to aim at is a form of courtesy. I want to address you by the term by which you'd like to be addressed. And I should at least see the good, even if I disagree with, you know, all the stuff about pronouns or whatever it might be. I should see the good intent that's behind that rather than assuming it's some sort of hideous communist plot. You know, I mean, <laughs> so I think we call for charity. I'll tell you who's written about this brilliantly. And that's Diana Glyer, who also wrote one of the great books on the Inklings. But she gave a lecture, which I think is fairly freely, uh, on, on intellectual hospitality. She coined that phrase, I think. And I think that's been a very influential lecture. And I, I think she sets out how we might have a civil discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and not a moment too soon. We are unfortunately running out of time, so we'll, we'll just have to have you back at some point to talk a little bit more on cultivating a healthy imagination. But as promised, Malcolm, the last word is yours. Oh, thank you. I think because we talked about the kind of uncharitable cacophony and the sort of hate speech that's flying around and the need to be preserved from that and to speak with a different voice. I think I might read you my take on Psalm 31 from my book, David's Crown. I, I would commend you if you want to look it up sometime to read Psalm 31 and then read this poem again. It's on my blog. I turn to some of the images in the Psalm, but I want to read this as a testimony to the fact that God is still our refuge and a very present help in trouble. So my take on, on Psalm 31 in Te Domini Spiravi. The night withdrew and joy came in the morning when I remembered that I was remembered, that even through the bitter tears of mourning I was sustained. The darkest powers were hindered in their insidious work within my soul, and I was held together and remembered by your unceasing love. You made me whole when all the world was tearing me apart, when there was fear on every side, you stole into the secret garden of my heart, a good thief in the night, and hid with me in your strong tabernacle, held apart from all that strife of tongues, cacophony of condemnations. So you kept me safe in your deep silence and your mystery. Malcolm, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's very good to be with you on this. And uh, my New Year's greetings to all the, the folk that have joined us on this call. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos from our past events.